The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Good evening, everyone. Thanks. <laughs> my name is Shelley Graf, and I am leading the practice group tonight with my good friend, Gabriel Keller Flores. Um, and we're going to do something. Yes, turn up the volume. Thank you. Is this better? Any better? It is better? Okay. Is that yes or no? Nope. A little bit. Not so great. How about now? Any better? Very little, Rob says. <laughs> Let me adjust this thingy. Is that better? Great. Okay. All right. Can you hear back there? Okay, nodding. Good. Yes. There's a, yeah, we have to live with that. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so I just got back from a retreat a month at the Forest Refuge at uh, Barrie, Massachusetts, at Insight Meditation Society. They have a, a place there called the Forest Refuge where you can go and do some fairly independent practice. It's not so much structured retreats except that there are teachers there, which is nice. And uh, they offer instructions every morning, and uh, you can have a practice group with them a couple times a week, and they give a Dharma talk a couple times a week, and then you're kind of on your own after that. So it was a lovely week, a month. Month. It was definitely a month. <laughs> so I want to share a little bit about my reflections on seclusion. And then Gabe and I will just open it up to questions about seclusion or retreating or this uh, balance of daily life and secluding the mind the way that we do when we sit down and close the eyes or when we go off on a retreat. Gabe has done a lot of retreating also, so I thought it would be fun for us to just do this together. And I like the company. (laughs) So I was just reflecting on what we're actually doing here, and um, just how simple this practice is that it often feels difficult or more complicated, but it's actually not complicated. Right? The instructions, the Buddha's instructions are really simple. Just meet experience, just like this. Right? Mark says all the time, this is the way it is now. So that's what we're asked to do, just be with things the way that they are. And that changes depending on the conditions in the mind, in the body, external conditions. So that's where the not easy part comes in because it's not always pleasant and that's the truth of the way things are also. And that unpleasantness is our gateway often to more learning. So it's important that we learn how to meet difficulty because there's so much to learn through that. Andrea Fellow was one of the teachers at the retreat I was at, and she said that 
practice of receptive awareness is exploring the simplicity of being with experience and what complicates experience. So that receptive awareness is willing to meet this even if it feels complicated, right? So we don't actually have to reject any experience of the heart, mind, body, external world. We don't actually have to reject anything even if it feels more complicated than it actually is, even if it feels unbearable, even if there's a lot of doubt or confusion, even if it's overwhelming. Like, we don't have to reject any of that either. That all counts. It's all practice. So our aim is really to keep the mind as balanced as possible, to keep the heart, the mind, the body as relaxed as possible. Because it's only in the relaxed, balanced state of being that we can do that hard work. And it's in that hard, the process of awakening. It's actually the process that matters. And that process is inspired by intention after intention after intention after intention. It's like intention leads to action. Intention, there's an intention in the mind, and then there's a response to that intention. And this is happening all the time in our lives, but we hardly ever... Notice it. And so the power of seclusion is that it's more, it's more easily recognized. Right? That there is an intention in the mind, like something motivated me to stay on retreat. Not just to go on retreat, but to actually stay on retreat. To get up every morning and decide to practice. To be sincere. Something propels us to not just sit down here at Common Ground but to keep the eyes closed, to keep the posture, and to maintain awareness moment after moment after moment. And that's the power of beautiful intentions and all of our collective intentions in the room that creates a community. I heard this story again on retreat that I felt really moved by, the story of Bahia that some of you probably know. And I'll just sort of paraphrase the story as it's told in the scriptures, the Buddhist scriptures. Bahia was this um, person who lived, he was an ascetic, and so he lived about 1,200, 1200 miles away from the Buddha. And he was a pretty wise man, um, and a lot of people would go to him for advice, and they would offer him food to keep him sustained, and he was just, you know, living his life in this way. Until one day he had this idea like, wow, everybody thinks I'm so great. I wonder if I'm actually so great. <laughs> and then the thought like, well, I wonder if I'm actually enlightened. <laughs> and then as the story goes, these heavenly messengers, or uh, it's not the right phrase, but these devas, these visitors, uh, showed up and kind of pointed Bahia in the right direction. Like, no, buddy, you're not actually enlightened. And actually, you're not even practicing in the way to be enlightened. But 
you should go see the Buddha, because that's the path. And so Bahia set off 1,200 miles walking. Now, this is in Asia. So he probably walked maybe 12,000 like up and down mountains from the coast to where the Buddha was staying. So walking about 12,000 miles, maybe, or maybe up to 12,000 feet in elevation. So can you imagine that? And so then this, the way the story is usually told is, you know, uh, emphasizing the ending, and I'll get to that. But what was so moving to me was the power of intention. I, with every step, he set off walking. That's a lot of walking, isn't it? I mean, if you can imagine doing that, how many times would you want to quit? Walking over mountains. That's not like paved mountains either, right? Not nice roads, but walking just to get some brief instruction. It took him about more, it took him more than 300 hours. So he gets to where the Buddha is staying, and the Buddha wasn't there. He went to the monastery, and the Buddha was out on alms rounds. Alms rounds is just when the monks go out and the lay people fill their bowls with food. So Bahia went out looking for the Buddha and found the Buddha. And he said "Buddha, to the Buddha, please teach me the Dharma. And the Buddha said, Bahia, it's not the right time. And then Bahia followed that with a little bit of a plea. Like, please teach me the Dharma. We don't know how long we're going to live. And the Buddha again said, it's not the right time, Bahia. And this is kind of a pattern in the suttas where somebody asks three times for the teachings and the Buddha finally says yes. So the Buddha, so Bahia asked that third and magical time and the Buddha said, okay, Bahia. He just asked for brief teachings, so the Buddha gave him teachings in brief. And he said... Then, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there will only be the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you there will, when for you there will only be the seen in reference to the seen, only the herd in reference to the herd, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized. Then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. When there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So what the heck does that all mean? The Buddha is really pointing to is this teaching in bare attention. He's saying that all of our experience is really summed up in six broad categories. What you can see, the seen. What you can hear, the heard. What you can feel with the body, the sensed. What you can taste, right, the five senses. And the cognized, or the experience of mind. Often we know that by noticing thought. 
So the Buddha is saying, like, our experience is really just this. But he also says the next step is that, the next thing he says is that this is a training. When you train yourself thus, right? I think that's what he said. This is how you should train yourself. So he's not saying it's really easy (laughs) to just notice that, right? We're human beings. We have our lives, and they it feels more complicated. It feels so personal all the time. So the Buddha is saying it's a training, right? We have to set forth with intention again and again and again on this training. And then the result, he points to the result. And this is the teaching on nature, or not self. But I like that word nature. That all of experience is just a natural, it's all naturally occurring phenomenon. It's not actually uh, personal. Everything that's experienced is a result of the conditions that were laid before this moment, and everything experienced, everything will give rise to something else. So all of our intentions will give rise to a response, and all of those responses will have an impact. It's just simple cause and effect. right? So this is the teaching that the Buddha gave. And it said that Bihiya, when hearing even these brief teachings, became fully enlightened. So this, we go, we have these opportunities, we take advantage of these opportunities to seclude the mind so that we can actually see more clearly into the nature of the way things are. Right, so that we can catch a glimpse into what the Buddha was talking about. And in moments, it's really possible to see, like, oh, wow. There's what the mind sees, and then the story that the mind creates on top of that. That's different, right? There's what the mind hears, or, I'm sorry, what the ears take in, and then the story on top of that. I saw this again and again on retreat. That I would, I remember walking down the road, and just noticing, seeing, seeing, seeing. And then I started to notice the, the image that would come to mind. And it was like a mirage, like image after image, thoughts, right? Image of memories. Oh, this is when I went camp. That tree is just like that tree when we went camping with the God kids. Oh, that person looks just like my wife. <laughs> Whatever. My wife is in California. She's not even close. But the mind would do this, right? So it wasn't just taking in sight. It was creating a story, layering thought on top of that, layering a personal story on top of that. And it became easier with time just to see this as habit. Like the mind stores up these memories. They come back. Things remind me of other things. When I don't recognize that, I get lost in thought. I'm lost in thought, the mind gets tense, the mind gets tense, it wants to collapse, doesn't want to do this, it feels too hard. When it feels too hard, I want a piece of chocolate. (laughs) Whatever, right? It just goes on like this. So one thing just sets something else in motion again and again and again. And it's not like, so going away on retreat is like boot camp, (laughs) Right? It's an intense experience. It can be, whether you do it for a half a day or a full day or a month or longer. 
But we sometimes have this idea, this subtle expectation, maybe not even so subtle, that this is going to be the time. We're going to sit down, and it's going to be really transformative, right? I'm going to go to Common Ground on Wednesday night, and it's going to change my life. And it's not that this doesn't change our lives moment to moment, but it's this it's the continuity of awareness again and again and again that's transformative. And the Buddha used this analogy of, um, of a ship that uh, gets knocked around by the wind and the sun and the ropes on the ship or, you know, washed with sand. And it's not, and, you know, slowly over time, these things change the, the ship and the rope. You know, the ship get, or the rope gets soaked and then it dries out and then it, eventually it rots. The rope rots, right? So this is the way purification happens in the mind. It's, it's slow and it's, it, it happens because of our intentions and our moment-to-moment cultivation of awareness. So boot camp matters, but so does daily life. Because you go to boot camp, and you learn a lot real fast. And then you go home in daily life, and you get to try it all out and see what's there, right? You see how your life works differently. I was leading a retreat last weekend, and I told the story, and it was really profound for me. So I was away on retreat for a month. It was really quiet there. And then there's no real beginning and ending at this place. And so... I was practicing up to the very last minute. So about 10 minutes, I had my watch on. I was doing walking practice, and I knew it was like 10 minutes, my van is going to be here. And so I just go and gather my bags, look outside, and there's my van. And in no time, I'm in the van and traveling down the highway on the way to the airport. And if you can imagine, from all of that stillness and the dirt paths and the country, it's settling and all that nature. And then I'm in the city with all these sounds and lights and stimuli, it was intense. And I could just see the mind like, oh, I don't want this, I don't want this, right? So I'm over the past month cultivating this moment-to-moment acceptance, allowing, beautiful, yeah, I got this, it's okay, it's okay. And then as soon as I'm in the van, I'm like, no, (laughs) not this, please. And I get to the airport, and there's these fantasies in the mind of like, okay, eventually I'm going to get on the airplane, I can close my eyes, it's going to be fine. (laughs) Then I get on the airplane, and I'm sitting next to this delightful person who hasn't taken a vacation in decades and wants to talk. (laughs) And so there was like a moment when the mind, the heart, just completely surrendered to the way things are and knew like there's no use in fighting. This is the way things are. It's just like this. And in that moment, it became really fine. There was no problem. And we talked. It was pleasant. I felt happy. There was a natural kindness. It wasn't even like Shelley was trying to be kind. (laughs) It was just what was there after a month of practice. It was there after this moment-to-moment cultivation. It was really profound for me to see what is possible with this practice and the surprises that are there. And this has shown up in this way since I've been back in different scenarios in my life. 
Like, oh, it's possible to not engage this argument that is brewing with my partner. Or it's possible to notice the heart that's getting tense because there's too much to do now. And then in that noticing, it just sort of drops it. Oh, it's like this. Tension is like this. Too much to do is like this. And then there's a beautiful intention that arises to simplify my life a little bit more. So it's this lovely balance of support. Retreat supports daily life. Daily life supports the intention to go to boot camp from time to time. The intention to get to know the mind with as much subtlety as possible. To do the purification, to do the effort that leads to the purification of heart and mind. I think I'll leave it there and open it up to just a conversation. So really just a time for us all to reflect on the power of seclusion in our lives in whatever way whatever way we've experienced seclusion. Even in a moment, you know, like a moment of the mind really landing in the way things are. One of my, my yogi job when I was on retreat was washing lettuce. And it was amazing how present the mind could be with the simple activity of washing lettuce. So that's a moment of seclusion when the mind is really there, right? It's a moment of seclusion when the mind is really the eyes closed or we're doing, doing a formal meditation. It's some time, some moments of seclusion on retreat. So we can use that word to sort of in a broad way. So just reflect on the moments of seclusion in your life or your experience on retreat and what you've learned from that and maybe the questions you might have about yeah, what it's like or anything you might want to ask. It's fair game too. And then this, what you've noticed in your experience with going between seclusion and daily life and how they support each other. So let's just close our eyes together. Allowing the mind to just reflect on our experiences of seclusion. Accepting whatever comes. Allowing questions to arise. And dropping it all. Open your eyes when you're ready. Before we get to the questions, I'd like to ask my colleague if he has anything to say. Do they have anything to say? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, even that, you know, because we can have a fixed idea of seclusion means non-engagement. And then we think, oh, well, I can only practice seclusion in certain conditions or 
that it means I have to change my life radically and go be a monastic. I liked a recent definition I read about seclusion, that really it's seclusion from unwholesome mind states, seclusion from the hindrances, when the five hindrances of ill will, sensual desire, restlessness and worry, sloth and torpor and doubt are temporarily at bay because the mind is maybe absorbed in something it finds interesting. We can even experience that, a kind of seclusion in our daily lives when we're we're just giving ourselves wholeheartedly to some activity. Um, yeah. Just wanted to comment on... Uh, Simplicity. Yeah. That the practice is simple. It really is. I mean, and even the the profound teachings of the Buddha, you know, really these teachings are about liberation, complete freedom from suffering. And, but, you know, conceptually they're quite simple. The Buddha said the, all he taught was suffering and the end of suffering. And the Four Noble Truths go into that in a bit more detail. Of There's suffering, there's a cause, which is clinging. When clinging is abandoned, there's the cessation of suffering. And there's supporting factors that support that, that cessation to be more likely. How we live our lives, what we do with our minds how we perceive, how we understand what's going on. And that it's core, then it's the question whenever we're suffering is, is there clinging? And we could, you know, pass a test very easily on a conceptual level. Okay, suffering is because there's clinging. I just won't cling. So it's simple on that level. And one way it sort of occurred to me recently is the practice is simple. I mean, you know, there's a lot of teachings in in Buddhism, but I've been reading a book recently, The Buddha Before Buddhism by Gil Fransdahl, and it's kind of uh, these poetic verses, and they're very simple, and there's not a lot of lists. It's not, um, it's just basically peace through non-clinging, not clinging to sensuality, not clinging to views, being better, equal than, or worse than, releasing, wherever the heart is contracted, releasing, right there, wherever it is, all these different ways that we get caught up. And so it it occurred to me that that's simple, Non-clinging is simple, peace is simple, the practice is simple. Because wherever we are, even if we are caught up or in suffering, the release of that isn't complicated. So it's not that it's complicated. So the practice is simple. Everything else is complicated, is how one way my mind thought of it. Because it's true. I mean, we can hear... Oh, the practice is simple, and then we look at our lives, and they seem very complicated. But maybe that's just the habits of the mind. And I was thinking, 
a little bit just right now about that, even that word complicated, and what do we really mean when we say that? You know, like even today I was getting ready for Joseph Goldstein's visit on Saturday, and I'm kind of running the registration, and there's 650 people going. And so, like, that's a lot of things, but is it complicated? Not really. I mean, it's just, is this person coming or are they not coming? You know, or people who do computers, like, it's binary, I hear. It's either yes or no. So it can be a lot of amount, you know, a lot of stuff. But I think what we often mean when we say complicated or messy is that there's suffering involved. There's clinging that the mind is confused by. There's suffering that the mind is confused by. It doesn't see the clinging or can't because it's overwhelmed often, I think, by the suffering. It's confused by it. And so we do the thing trying to alleviate it that actually causes more suffering. We we writhe. There's a, one of those early poems the Buddha talks about people writhing like fish, but there's a thorn in the heart, and when the thorn is removed, so it's that simple, just there's a thorn. So I think a lot of it, you know, it's not about right or wrong or even figuring out, okay, where's the clinging? Or I mean, it can be useful to reflect to some degree, but it's not something we figure out using the same strategies or the same viewpoint of basically trying hard or using willpower or thinking it's about me and am I good or bad? You know, if I'm suffering, I'm bad. You know, just a a small example, in in the sit tonight, I was, um, yeah, feeling tense, anxious, and, um, and I was sort of, because I'm in the mindfulness of breathing class, sort of had as a loose intention to, to continue that investigation. Um, but something felt off. I mean, basically I was suffering, even if, it, you know, relatively subtle, but my heart was not content. And I noticed that the things I was trying, the strategies or the the efforts I was making didn't seem a little off. They weren't. So at some point I kind of set aside that more gross intention of being with the breath or, um, and basically, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like it's not, it's not even a conceptual move. I mean, there was some mental recognition. This isn't working. Um, but I was sort of reflecting on that that simple, like there's something simple here that the mind is missing. And it turned out that there was some resistance to whatever the emotional feeling that was going on. And all of my efforts, even though on the surface they seemed appropriate, okay, I'm going to be with the breath, or okay, I'm going to, you know, relax or whatever, but it was all to some degree misaligned because it was to some degree a, a way to avoid feeling what I was feeling. And then just like, oh, this is an unpleasant feeling. I'm trying to get away from it. I don't like it. I don't quite know what to do with it. And maybe that's what's actually going on. And there's a 
relaxation that happened just with the mind seeing what was going on and that there was resistance, there's aversion, and that was the thorn. Doesn't mean, and what I, what actually happens in those moments is you actually feel what you don't want to feel. It's still unpleasant. It can be very unpleasant. In this case, yeah, pretty unpleasant. But um, but that thorn, there's a relief there that is really nice. Um, and then after that, there's just more clarity because. Yeah, and but you know, I, I say this. You know, there's not. I guess. Yeah, to point at that, it's not. You know, it's subtle. This is subtle, and uh, intuitive. And basically, we just—it's uh, trial and error. But whenever we have certainty, like this isn't working or I'm bad because it's not working or I, I'm just going to give up tonight's not the night or what, you know, whenever we have certainty and there's clinging and there's suffering, we can hold open that hypothesis, you know, using the conceptual framework that there's clinging here that I'm not seeing, but it's clinging that we're not seeing. So how do you see something you're not seeing or how do you become aware of something that you're not aware of? Well, first, you have to acknowledge that pos- that possibility, and there's humility there, and there's relaxation. Like, well, trying harder at what's not working isn't going to help. So it's this very, you know, humility. It's this very humble and open place. You know, it's not, and it's not comfortable for us. Not knowing isn't comfortable for the most part. So I'll leave my comments there, and we have uh, about 25 minutes to hear from people. Thoughts about seclusion or anything else that we've shared, questions, reflections from your practice and daily life on retreat. So what comes to mind? Um, My um, reflection is about the idea of seclusion and... This came really heavily this week. Uh, well, actually, for the last two weeks, as I followed the story of, in Thailand of the uh, young men that were caught. And it was just basically passed over quickly that their coach had been, ha- had had his monastic experience already. And this is always the fascinating thing because we can go off to a retreat as kind of put it in our mind. But what happens in this situation where your retreat and your seclusion is enforced upon you? And I follow the story and I just never got the idea that these young people had really had any trouble with this all happening. Uh, that, you know, it's never been brought up that they were afraid, that their whole experience was something bad. And it just, uh, knowing for myself, if I were in a cave for two weeks, I'd be, you know, just 
out of it. And so it kind of got me to think about seclusion and how we use it that any any one time we can think of ourselves in seclusion um, and how we react when it's enforced and how we react when it's voluntary. Yeah. Nice reflection. I actually saw an article that they practice meditation in the cave. Did you see that? Yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. That they had a coach. I'm, I just kind of caught a glimpse of the story. I've only been back a, a week, but I caught a glimpse of the story that they were. Uh, do you guys know the story? This, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's the whole. The thing is that at this point, we're all hypothesizing or guessing as to what an experience is like, and I know this experience myself, like uh, because this heart mind ex- body expression has knows anxiety quite well and <laughs> with anxiety there's you know the anticipation of something is different than the something right which only points to that the anxiety is a relationship to an idea right so at this point we sort of even in the the thought like oh i could never do that or we don't actually know what if the heart would surrender to the conditions in a moment. We've all gone through extraordinarily difficult things in our lives. And in imagining those difficult things, it's very different than actually going through them, right? So in a moment of deep sadness, sometimes there's a real willingness of the heart to actually be with that. But the thought of going through that is really painful, right? That's where the suffering, like, oh, I don't ever want to go through that again or something like that. So we don't actually know what will happen. Our guessing isn't the same as actually going through something that's difficult. And like Gabe was saying, that just because we're practicing doesn't mean that things aren't going to be unpleasant. But a willingness to, this heart's willingness to be with difficulty is actually possible. There can be peace with difficulty. And there can be peace with difficulty, especially when the mind knows deeply the truth of things. When the mind knows, like, this isn't personal, sweetie. It's just nature. I know that ex- experience, and, and there can be peace in that moment. When the mind sort of drops its proliferation and guessing and um, all of its ideas about what's actually happening and just drops into the experience of the now, that's a, there can be peace there, even in the most difficult of scenarios. Yeah. So when you ask the question, Shelley, about consider retreat or how it's in your, how you bring that in your daily life, I think about the hook of technology and the phone and how 
with this practice, it's easier to, what am I doing right now to put that down? So if I get a moment, I'm a mom of two. If I get a moment, it's, oh, what are my friends doing? Or what's going on in the news? And that hook is just another thing to consider now and to like check in with this, this desire to know something else. And I think when I go on retreat or when I intentionally go camping or out in nature and put that away, that feels so much better, feels so much more connected to my thoughts and the people I'm with and everything around me. So yeah, just reflecting on that hook in daily life over and over again. I'm Kathy. I just wanted to share how I learned to think differently about the concept of solitude and seclusion and what it really means to be alone. Uh, some of my most powerful sit times in my entire life have been while holding a sleeping toddler or baby and and breathing in unison with them. Um, so I wasn't secluded, technically. There was another human right here. Um, but that helped me realize that I didn't need to necessarily go away, find babysitters, um, be in a different place other than my own living room. Does that make sense? Yeah. When you're talking about uh, f uh, peace versus anxiety, it it seems like when we when our thinking is based on fear, then it's more likely to produce anxiety, and when it's based on when our thinking is based on curiosity it's more likely to produce peace. It's the, it seems like it's the fear in our thinking that leads to anxiety. And like, I don't know, people trapped in a cave or trapped in their own house, or, you know, their own lives. If they're, if they're anticipating with fear, they're much more likely to be anxious than if they're anticipating with curiosity. It's Yeah. And then, so the Buddha taught, all about cause and effect. So always in the discourse, some of the lists that are there are sequential lists, like when this is there, then that happens, when that happens, then that happens. So, and, uh, you know, some of the instructions are often what supports the arising of that, what supports the falling away of that. So a natural question that arose in listening to your comment is, because that's my experience as well. You know, it's thinking leads to, certain kinds of thinking lead to anxiety. Certain kinds of thinking don't lead to anxiety, lead to peace. And then, so the natural question is, what's the supporting causes for those factors, for the thinking that leads to fear, for fear-based thinking? And then interest, yeah. Because, yeah, things could be unpleasant or challenging, but if the mind's interested, it's not so caught up in fear. And what I've found is this teaching on nature, 
really helps um, with this because from the point of view of me and my anxiety and my long history of anxiety and how it it's made me feel before and you know that this is just like that time and it's me me that's not very interesting it's just scary and i know exactly what it is i it's me and it's bad and i shouldn't feel it and it's really and i'm going to shut down now and run away or whatever because i know what it is but from the point of view that this is nature it's cause and effect it's not personal because i you know from that point of view i can with more space i can see well sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not so it can't be me in that really lasting way it just happens in certain you know when there's certain conditions and when there's certain conditions it increases when there's certain conditions it decreases and then i'm really interested because i know the more i pay attention in that way interested in cause and effect i'll just learn and it turns out that actually the way that i observe with what view i observe is probably the most important you know the most important factor yeah like even in in a little bit what i was describing earlier just actually after that just sitting up here i was sort of experiencing some anxiety and you know quite intense at one point and i was doing exactly what i'm describing right now where seen like the mind's first response is you know because we can't we don't always have mindfulness right in those moments you know when something big hits us and so the mind reacts in the way it habitually reacts but now when that happens my first response when there's enough mindfulness and wisdom is to notice the view that's present because out of the view that's present all of the actions come out of that so even if you know there's i think you know from that view i know what's going on to some extent oh there's anxiety and then the mind wants to do something about that like try to calm down or whatever but it's all coming out of a view that this is me this is personal this is bad basically so my first intervention was to just it's hard to describe <laughs> but like do i know this is bad and then just even holding open that possibility suddenly there's a little more space to see it a little more clearly oh this is really unpleasant and the mind has a very strong habit of interpreting it as bad and all these different strategies pretend i'm not anxious or you know do something to calm down or res- just resist it and hate it and then maybe that'll help somehow <laughs> and uh but so just that sort of in a sense a step back to actually question whether my framework whether i have real certainty in that and then there's just a little more space and then a little more investment in that okay well what is really going on there's you know 
this feeling and this strong certainty and that's unpleasant and I see the the possible road to go down, but that seems to be leading to suffering, so I may not know what to do, but I'm going to kind of hold off on that for now. And then lo and behold, things change because that's what happens. Everything changes without me needing to do anything about it. And now I'm still anxious, but a little less. <laughs> so, so it, yeah, I just wanted to add that piece, you know. Yeah, kind of thinking. And what, you know, what fuels the thinking? The view in the mind. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. As we're going along this evening, I just keep... Uh, being reminded that uh, of the instruction that I began with, that a relaxed mind can be aware, right? So in so that's our job is to keep the mind relaxed, and a relaxed mind can more easily accept the way things are. So we don't so rejecting it's it. Uh, is a strong habit of ours to reject what's unpleasant. So we need to train in accepting unpleasant. So we don't, even when there's anxiety or fear or difficult, any difficult emotions, it might seem like the right thing to do to try to resolve that, like it's a problem to resolve. But the way to deeper understanding, the way to understand nature, the way to understand, you know, that question that Gabe asked, is this bad? It's just a little bit of wisdom there that allowed for what he called space, right? Or a little acceptance of this. So in that acceptance, then there is a possibility of meeting the next moment. And in that meeting the next moment, then there's continuity that's developed or established in the mind. And with more continuity, then wisdom naturally comes along. So we don't have to try to resolve the problem of anxiety or resolve the problem of fear or resolve the problem of anything. We just have to be aware in this moment with, except with a calm, with a relaxed mind a mind that can accept the way things are. And in this acceptance, everything will follow. That's nature. That's the teaching of nature. That it's not, there's not a me that has to try to be an aware human being. There's just this. The mind knows this. And in the mind knowing this, it lands in the moment and makes it a little easier for mindfulness to be there in the next moment. And then as that is established again and again and again in this moment to moment to moment, no matter what is there, anything unpleasant, anything pleasant, anything that's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, then wisdom will naturally reveal itself. Like in the way Gabe just pointed to. Does this have to be bad? Just like that. That's just a little wisdom. A little wisdom that makes it just a little bit easier to meet. Right? Have time for maybe one more question or comment. Yay. Sorry to be a late commenter. Does it work? Um, you you said something about how oh, people just have to not think themselves better than anyone else. 
And I was like, that just seemed absolutely impossible with how we're structured and how much pleasure it gives you to think better than someone else. And then we also talk about things that are simple and I realized, well, it is just that simple. You just think you're not because there's something, oh, that's just great. That's so freeing to not think bad things about people. Isn't that what it's all about? You know? And they're like, no, not possible. And I'm thinking, well, it's just your own head and your own thoughts. So I wanted to say that. And that's all I'm saying. (laughs) I just want to say that the practice doesn't discriminate. So awareness can know anything. Right? Even the most despicable thoughts in our minds, that's how the mind, that's the beginning of purification, of knowing, like, it's like this. Oh, yeah. These murderous thoughts are like this, or whatever it is, right? These hateful thoughts are like this. But what happens in that moment? I know what happens in my mind at times, especially, this is especially clear when there's some awareness and a brewing argument with my partner or something like that. (laughs) But the mind, you know, there's like all this self-righteous energy that can rise up. Like, oh, you know, she's doing this to me. I've got to do this or say this. Or I'm going to put her in her place. Or, But when there's awareness of that stuff, then there's also a possibility of not reacting to it. So it's like, oh, having these hateful thoughts feels like this. It doesn't feel good. Right? It doesn't mean I have to reject those hateful thoughts. It means I get to know what it feels like. And in that knowing, I don't, ha- it doesn't actually make sense to retaliate. It doesn't make sense to feed that. Because I actually don't want to hurt her. And it doesn't feel good to me. So why would I feed that? Right? And it's not even that Shelly has to know that or do that. That just happens as mindfulness is established again and again. Does anyone have one final comment or question? My name is Utra. Uh, I've been coming to Common Ground for eight years, and I haven't gone to too many retreats, but I practice daily. And I I attribute, um, to me, it's, it's not that hard to sit every day. And I attribute that, that to the fact that uh, my life is pretty easy. I'm in very good health. I'm retired, so I don't have the stress of a job. I have um, my uh, husband with whom I get along with pretty well, and most of my relationships are good, except uh, I have two sons. One of them thinks that I'm the best mother in the world. My other son, that's a different story, We've had a, a rocky relationship. So from my perspective, when his life is going well, um, his parents are okay. And when that's not the case, then it's something wrong with his upbringing that we didn't raise him right. Well, a few months ago, we were in a, a pretty good period. We got along pretty well. Then I had lunch with him, and I was sharing with him my plan to um, celebrate our 55th anniversary and uh, a big party that we were planning. And then afterwards, after lunch, 
I got a text which he was intended to send to his wife, but it came to me, <laughs> and it was lambasting my plan and uh, being very mean to me about uh, the way the way I I behaved, or he just didn't. It just sounded very bad. That was very hurtful to me. Uh, he immediately recognized that what he did, and he tried to call me because I wouldn't talk to him. And um, so that went on all afternoon. I was being very, very sad, but very mindful, very, very hurt. And he tried to call again many times. Then he sent a text saying that he he'd been a horrible son. Just um, forget about him. He he doesn't want to live anymore. He wants to. He he just you know obviously suffering a lot. But during that afternoon and that night, I could just see myself the the transformation from the hurt that I felt to a complete compassion for him, realizing that this is a lot of suffering for him that through that night. So the next morning, I went to see him at his home. And and at that time, I told him, you will always be my son. I will love you no matter what. And just talk to me. Let me know how you feel. You can say anything. I will listen to you. And well, the end of the story was that he 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 told me all the the feelings, bad feelings that he had about about um, his perception of the time when I was angry at him and this and that. And I listened through the whole thing for the first time without feeling defensive. And we ended up being very good friends again. That's the end of the story. But I attributed everything to my practice. The fact that I was able to, you know, it's organically transform from the defensiveness that I had felt in the past whenever he accused me of being a bad mother to an absolute compassion. Thanks. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.